Paul is about to address this false teaching, this heresy in the church, and he begins in verses one, or chapter 1, 15 through 23. He's kind of establishing the truth. So before he goes after the error, he restates, this is true. Jesus is supreme over everything. He's supreme in creation. He's supreme. He's superior in redemption. So he stated that, and now uh, in verses chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse, I think it's about 5, what Paul is doing, he's trying to say, and this is how much I care about y'all. So before he even gets into the problem, he says, first, here's the truth, and second, I love y'all. And that's what we're going to look at today. He's saying, this is how much I care. This is what's true. This is how much I care. And then he's going to come back. Uh, We'll look at it in a couple of weeks where he starts um, going after the error a little bit. Starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, For the sake of his body, which is the church. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. It's a little confusing um, reading that. Today we're going to look at two things that aren't super encouraging. We're going to look at suffering and waiting. Those are two of the things that Paul talks about here. And here he's talking about suffering. Just to be clear, he's not talking about Jesus' death being... um, insufficient. He's not saying there was something lacking in terms of the efficacy or the, uh, the ability of Jesus' death to reconcile us to God. We looked at that last week in, um, nine, in 1, 19 to 23. It's very clear. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Once we were alienated, once we were enemies, But now God has reconciled us by Jesus' physical body through death to present us holy in his sight. So Paul's already said he he did it all. He did all the work. So now he's not coming back and saying somehow Jesus' passion, Jesus' death, the suffering that he underwent, the resurrection, somehow left something to be desired. There's more work for us to do if we actually want to be reconciled to God. He's talking about something else completely, which is his suffering on behalf of these people. He, he says there, it's kind of an implied pronoun, now I rejoice in what I suffered for you in getting this message across to you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Matthew 10, 24 and 25 says this, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is, how they treat me, you can't expect them to treat you any better. Whatever they did to me, they're going to do to y'all. That's the picture here that Paul is talking about, filling up what was lacking in regard to Jesus' sufferings. There's this picture throughout the New Testament. You see it through Paul. He's got this little thread that runs that Jesus' sufferings, they were incomplete in the sense of they're not finished. There's more suffering to be endured as we all spread the gospel and seek to, for the Lord to use us to establish his kingdom here on the earth. Jesus suffered in carrying out his mission and doing his deal. And what Paul is saying is we should expect to suffer in carrying out our mission and doing our deal. So that's the sense in which he's filling up what was lacking again and have anything to do with the cross and has everything to do with obedience. I think it's in Romans 12 
when Paul is talking about the body, he says if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. So again, there's this picture, I don't get it. Our union with Jesus is so intimate. We're so tightly connected to him that his suffering flows over into our life. And when we suffer for his sake, it kind of flows over uh, back to him because we're connected so tightly. So a few things on suffering in the New Testament. We will experience suffering. Um, in the Bible, there's a, there's a group of words, tribulation, distress, affliction, trial. Usually it's the same word underlying all of those. And we're told very clearly, get ready for it. This is Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3. He's talking to the Thessalonians. He said, we sent Timothy, who's our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. That's the same word as afflictions in Colossians that we just read, or tribulation um, in Revelation, or persecution. Same word. You know quite well that we were destined for these trials. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way. So what Paul is saying to these guys is this is not news. We knew it going in. We told you it was going to happen, and it happened. This is nothing to be surprised about. Acts 14 says this. If I can flip there. Again, this is Paul talking, trying to reassure some folks. They, that's Paul and Barnabas, preached the good news in that city. They won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. This is what Paul says. We must go through many hardships. That's that same word again. Afflictions, distress, tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. They said. So again, what Paul is saying is this is not news. This is not unexpected. There's nothing wrong with you. God is not, nothing is messed up. This is, this is the way that it is. And as we in, uh, encounter these sufferings, Jesus is very clear on how we need to respond. This is Matthew 24. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted, that same word, and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. They'll betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear. They'll deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. The love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Again, you see the picture there. What Jesus is saying is this stuff is going to happen. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be afflicted. There's going to be trials. There's going to be distress. All of that, just bank on it. And his expectation for all of us is that we stand firm. We've talked a lot about the parable of the soils. That third one, that shallow soil, that same word is used. The person who withers away when persecution comes because of the word. The idea there is you started, but you didn't finish. And we've said a bunch. You've got to finish. It's not enough to start well. Jesus is looking for finishers. Again, it's kind of this idea, filling up the suffering that, that was lacking for the church, for Christ's body. There's things that God wants us to do. Look at verse 25 in Colossians. I've become its servant, that's the church, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. For Paul, this suffering was a direct result of doing his deal. It was a direct result of being obedient to God. It wasn't because he veered off track that he was suffering. It's because he was staying on the right road that he was suffering, and it was all for the sake of the church. He was do same thing is true for us. As we do our deals, whatever that looks like, you can expect to suffer. Again, read through the New Testament. It's a common theme. 
suffering for doing what's good, suffering for righteousness, all of that is a, it's tied together with suffering for Jesus. There's some way in which our suffering identifies us with him. Philippians 3.10 says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Romans 8.18, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. As we suffer, it's not just that we identify with Jesus and his sufferings, we also get to identify him with him in his glory. Again, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but there seems to be a connection. As we suffer with for him, we also will receive, enjoy, see is a word that's often used, his glory. 1 Peter 4.12, dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial, same word, you are suffering. So don't be shocked as though something strange were happening to you. Again, Peter's saying this is, this is not news, this is not a headline. But rejoice that you may participate in the sufferings of Christ. Why do we rejoice? So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So kind of the picture for us here, suffering expected. We suffer because of distress, persecution, trials, tribulation, I don't want to, whatever you want to say. None of that has anything to do with sin. Sin's a completely separate issue. Sin is disobedience. Distress, persecution, trials, hardship, affliction, that's not disobedience. That's when junk is happening to you. Bad things are happening and you're physically suffering. Paul lists this long category or this long list of sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11. He's trying to say, I'm a real apostle. I've worked much harder than these other guys who are claiming to be apostles. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. He's given you his resume. Five times I've received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, I guess that's everywhere, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. So on top of all of that, I daily face the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So what Paul said, here's my list. Here's all the things that I've suffered. Here's the way that I've filled up what was lacking in regard to Christ's sufferings for the body. And he did all of that in obedience to God. All of that stuff was done as he was doing his deal. So for us, the picture, expect it. You don't have to go looking for it. That was a question I was wondering. Is suffering something that we should seek out? If it's tied so closely to glory and it seems to be beneficial in... um, Romans 5.3, Paul says this, not, so, but we ought, not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know sufferings produces, produce perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. James, consider it pure joy when you face trials. There's that idea of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So I want, are we supposed to seek out suffering if it's so beneficial to us, if it connects us with Jesus in some way, if it allows us to experience his glory in some way, if it matures us, it produces hope, it allow, when perseverance does, it work, does its work, we're, prevent, we're presented perfect, mature, complete, not lacking anything. Hebrews 2.10, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. So we're like him when we suffer for doing So for all, should we seek it out? I don't, I, no. 
I think is the answer to that question. But neither should we run from it and consider it direction to move or, or sign from God to move in another direction. I think that's what happens for us a lot. Many of us are directed by our circumstances, for better or worse. Our circuit, we look at our circumstances to help us determine what's God doing, what's he saying, where's he at work. And oftentimes when we face difficulty, we assume, we use in the church, we use this idea of a closed door. And we say, that door is closed, so I'm going to move in another direction. That's okay. But we just read this list of Paul. How about getting beaten five times? Is that a closed door? Is getting thrown in jail a closed door? Is getting stoned a closed door? Is being in danger everywhere you go a closed door? Is being hungry and being poor and being naked and being... Are those closed doors? For him, they weren't. For him, they were a sign that he was doing the right thing. For him, it was fellowshipping in Christ's sufferings. It was maturing him. It was preparing him to receive this glory, whatever that looks like when Jesus returns completely different than a lot of us. For a lot of us, we assume obedience will lead to success. In the Bible, obedience is success, period. It doesn't necessarily lead to peaches and cream and chocolates. And it, No. For Paul, it was no, he would have been better off in terms of his life station if he had never been converted, if he had stayed a Jew and he had continued to persecute the Christians. He would have been better off if he continued in that Way He was already near the top of the food chain and he was working his way up. When he became a Christian, when he was con- confronted on the Damascus Road, this bright light, Jesus spoke to him, knocked him off a horse. God plainly says to him, this is your deal. This is what I want for you. It's Acts 9, 15 and 16. I want you to take the gospel to the Gentiles and also to my peoples, primarily to the Gentiles. And then he says, and I want to show you how much you're going to suffer for my name's sake. They went hand in hand. Paul, here's your deal, and here's the price you're going to pay in walking this thing out. And the same thing is true for many of us. We don't hear that clearly. I don't think any of you have been knocked off a horse. I don't think you've seen a bright light. You haven't heard. That doesn't happen for most of us. But the picture is the same. Here's your deal. There's going to be suffering associated with it. We have an enemy. Bo was talking about We have an enemy who steals and kills and destroys. There's a whole world system out there that's opposed to the things of God. We have to expect that as we're attempting to be obedient, as we're attempting to live lives of righteousness, as you're attempting to do your deal, whatever that is, you're going to face resistance. And that resistance, you're supposed to, I'm supposed to endure as suffering. Now, God puts a silver lining to the suffering. and He uses it to mature us, and he uses it to connect us more closely to Jesus and all of those things. But it doesn't make the suffering better. It still stinks. So we don't need to go looking for it, but we need to realize when it comes, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. We've said before, when you're trying to discern God's voice, when you want to know what he's saying to you, you start with the Bible. What does the Bible say? Second, what is the Holy Spirit saying to me in my heart? Third, what are the people who love me and love God saying? That's one, two, and three. Bible, Holy Spirit, the church. The people in your life who love you and love God. That's one, two, three. Then like number 74 is circumstances. It's a huge drop. You don't give those things equal weight with Bible, Holy Spirit, and the church. There are times where God wants you to walk past an open door, and there are times he wants you to kick down a closed one. It doesn't, we can't get so caught up in our circumstances that it causes us to 
they'll pull back. You, you get that. So what Paul is saying, as a direct result of doing my deal, I'm a slave to this church because of the commission, because of the mission, because of the vision, because of my deal. And so in doing that, in fulfilling that, I'm filling up what was lacking in, in, in regard to Christ's sufferings for the body. And the same thing can be said for us. There's a parable. This is not what the parable is about. So this might not, you can just see. Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep. So you've got a shepherd, he's got 100 sheep, he gets home with 99, and there's one who didn't come back. And kind of the, the word for lost make, makes it sound like he wandered away. He didn't, there was some intentionality, maybe an accident, but he wandered away from the rest of the group. The shepherd didn't lose him, the sheep left the flock. The shepherd leaves the 99 somewhere in a pen or wherever you leave sheep, and he goes after the one. One of the questions we, we hear all the time, and maybe you've asked it, maybe someone's asked you, why do bad things happen to good people? And you can go down the there are no good people route if you want. It's not very helpful when someone's suffering to say, you're not a good person. <laughs> but you can. You can make that argument, we're all bad and all those things. To me, when I look at that parable, of the of the, sheep, the lost sheep, to me that's a picture for why bad things happen to good people. What God has done is He's He's gathered. If you're He's gathered you in, you're safe. You're here, and so we're we're over here in the pen, and He's got us. But there's others who are still out here who've wandered away, either because they've never heard the gospel, or they've heard it and they've rejected for whatever reason. They've wandered away from Him, and what He's done is He said, "I'm going after." these people and he's so radically committed to reaching them that he's willing for us to suffer now in order to end all suffering he's got to end history it doesn't end until Jesus comes back and when Jesus comes back there are no more chances period that's it your decision for or against Jesus is set in stone when he comes back and so what got to me what he's doing is I've got some guys who are safe and y'all are over here, for better or worse, y'all are going to have to suffer for a time being because I've got more people that I've got to go get. There's, it's more than one who I'm pursuing. And he did the same thing for us. He waited for us and other people, your parents, your grandparents, your other people suffered while he was leaving the door open for us to come to him. That's, suffering is a part of this whole thing because in order for God to end it, He's got to end history, and that means there are no more chances. There's too many people out there for there to be no more chances. So for those of us who are kind of in, we're, we're part of the 99. We need to recognize, yes, we're going to suffer. It doesn't mean your life has to be terrible. It just means at some point you're going to have to endure persecution, whatever that looks like in the United States, I don't know, distress, whatever that looks like, I don't know, trial, I don't know what that, whatever those things look like in your life. We're going to have to endure them. There's a silver lining. It matures us. It connects us to Jesus on a more intimate level. It allows us to experience his glory. But the bigger picture is while you're doing that, it's for the sake of the body and for those who are not yet in the body. The mystery has been kept hidden. This mystery, this work. So Paul's saying, I came to present the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul uses the word mystery a lot 
It's not detective, let me try to solve the puzzle. It's something that was hidden that's now been disclosed by God. And he uses that word for lots of different things. He uses it for the incarnation. He uses it for his plan to include Gentiles. That's what it's used for here. He's saying the mystery is Christ in you, you Gentiles, the hope of glory. Gentiles aren't supposed to be in this type of a relationship with God. That's this mystery that's been disclosed. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that. The thing that I I picked up, this mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed. So there's this picture of God was keeping a secret for ages and generations, and now he's chosen to share it. In the Bible, there's two different understandings of time. One is watch time. It's chronos, duration of time, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. You get it. The other is kairos. It has nothing to do with your watch. It's a definite point in time when the circumstances are appropriate to act. So if I were to ask you what time is it, that's chronos. It's 10.09. If I were to say, have you proposed to her yet? You might say it's not the right time. You don't mean 10.09 is not the right time. You mean the circumstances aren't right yet. I hadn't talked to her dad or we had a fight last night or I hadn't gotten the ring or whatever's happened. It's just the circumstances aren't right. You get that. Chronos time, that's the way we measure. That's human. That's how we experience life. Kairos time, that's God's time. He's not nearly as concerned about the hours on the clock as he is about the circumstances in history. Second Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. That's chronos. Come on, God. Time's a-wasting here. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's his time. Our time. God, come on. A day is like a thousand years for us, or for him. And so we're tapping our foot. And for him, no. He's looking at the right time, the right circumstances. When he's got as many of these lost sheep in as possible, when as many of them as want to come in, come in, that's the right time when he's going to come back and end history, but not before. It has nothing to do with... 2012 on the Mayan calendar or whatever, whatever has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the circumstances being right. Then he's going to come back. Luke 2, there's a lady named Anna. There's a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment. This is Mary and Joseph. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child, that was Jesus, to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So kind of the picture there, you've got this woman, Anna. She most likely got married about 14. She lived with her husband for seven years. She's 21. She's a widow at 21. And from 21 to 84, for 63 years, all she did, what does it say? She never left the temple, worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. How you want a great 63-year experience there for Anna? Never left the temple, night and day, fasting and praying. So she's this woman, again, widowed at 21, who then just gives her deal is to never leave the temple, worship and pray, fasting night and day for God to do something. At this point when in history, it's 750 years of bad times for the Jews. They've been oppressed, they've been dispersed, they've been, they're a second class at best nation over the last 700 
in 50 years. These guys are reading the promises of the Old Testament. You're going to be the head, not the tail. No way. They're, they're the tail, 100%. And they're not seeing any of these promises that God made in the Old Testament become reality. 750 years. And so Anna, for 63 of her years, that's all she's doing is praying for God to fix it. Just fix it. They've seen this thread that runs through the Old Testament, that God's going to send a Messiah who's going to make everything right. And she's just saying, please send him now. That's what she's doing for 63 years. And I wonder for her, most of you aren't even close to 63 years old. So we can't fathom waiting 63 years for God to do anything. We get tired after like seven days. Come on, God. It's easy for you, right? You can just snap your fingers. Is this really that hard? Of course it's not that hard. But maybe the time's not right. I wonder how many times she wanted to give up. Again, over the course of 63 years, night and day. At what point do you throw in the towel? At what point do you say, you know what? I missed it. That's not really my deal. I, was, I, I, I misunderstood what God said to me. I thought I was supposed to be doing this. Obviously not. Because certainly you don't have to bang your head against a wall for 63 years without seeing any fruit. Galatians 4.4 4 says this, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. About 300 years before Jesus came, Alexander the Great pretty much took over everything, all the known world. And he said, everybody's got to speak Greek. In 280 B.C., the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek. So now you've got a common language, Greek, and you've got the Bible, God's Reve- the Old Testament. That's all we had at that point, the revelation of who God is in that common language. And Jews have been scattered everywhere. Now, they were scattered because they were disobedient, but they're scattered everywhere. There was a historian who said Jews fill every land and sea. So you've got a common language, you've got the Bible, the only Bible there is, translated into that common language, and the only people who understand that Bible spread out all over the world. Rome comes in, they, dominant power of the day, they institute this Pax Romana deal where there's peace everywhere. There's a common language, got the Bible everywhere, got Jews everywhere, and now it's safe to travel. We've got this system of roads that the Romans have built, so it's safe to travel, so you've got a free flow of people and ideas. So if you're God, and there are these one sheep all over the place, and you want to get to them, is there a better time to come? When everybody's speaking the same language, they can all read your book, your people who can interpret your book are everywhere, and it's easy to get around. Anna didn't know that. David didn't know that. Jeremiah didn't know that. Ezekiel didn't know that. Isaiah didn't know that. All they knew was, you've hidden stuff from us. There are these things that you said you would do, and you've kept them hidden for ages and for generations. And that's where some of us are. We don't know because we can't see the way he... It's what Bo was saying earlier. His ways aren't ours. He's waiting for the circumstances to be right. And for us, we'll never know the circumstances are right except in retrospect. For some of you, maybe you've struggled. You've waited for things. Some of you, maybe when it came to marriage, you had to wait. You wanted to be married at 22 and it was 28 or 32. But it wasn't until looking back that you could say, it was perfect when it happened had nothing to do with the time on your watch or the calendar in your daytimer. 
It had everything to do with when the circumstances were right. For some of you, maybe with children, you wanted them at 25 or 26, and it was 35 or 36. You waited for 10 years, and looking back, maybe now you can say, well, the time was right then. The Kairos moment when that happened for us. For some of you, maybe it's professionally or whatever. We never know that except in retrospect. We're Anna. We know the end of the story with her. And we can gloss over 63 years of fasting and praying and weeping for the same thing. She didn't know that this would be the day that her waiting would end. To her, when she woke up that day when Jesus showed up at the temple at eight days old, just like every other day she'd ever experienced in her life. And for us, that's where we live a lot of the time. We're waiting for God to do something. Open this door. Create this opportunity. Bring this person into my life. Do this and that. Whatever it is you're waiting for, speak to me about this. And we feel like, and it's rightfully so, he's kept some things hidden from us. There's some things locked up and he won't open the door. And we just have to recognize he's kept some things hidden from us and he's locked the door. But he'll open it when the time is right. Maybe tomorrow, maybe today, maybe in 10 years, I don't know. But he'll open the door. And our responsibility, just like when you're suffering from things from the outside, tribulation, things that are squeezing you, you endure, you don't give up, you stand firm, you finish the race. When you're waiting, and that for some of us, that suffering is worse. We'd rather somebody beat us with a stick than have to wait for God to do something. And for some of you, that's the suffering that you're enduring. It's waiting on the Lord, knowing there's nothing you can do except wait. And it's the picture. You get up the next day and you go back to the temple. And then you get up the next day and then you go back. And then you get up the next day and you go again. And you don't quit going until he answers. And then you can quit. He'll either say, stop, or he's going to say, here's Jesus, one or the other. And until you get one of those words, you keep going back. For all we know, for all Anna knows, it was her praying that brought this stuff about. It was because she had been praying and worshiping and fasting and whatever for 63 years. Maybe if it hadn't been for her, it would have been 10 more years before Jesus. We don't know. She had a part to play. She had to keep doing her deal until she either saw the fulfillment, Jesus coming, which she did, or God said, go do something else, which he never did. And the same thing is true for us. Don't give up. Just like you don't quit when you're suffering from the outside, you don't give up when it seems like God has hidden something from you, when it seems like he's locked the door. You've got to get up the next day and you go back. And you can do that if you believe he's your father. Not that he's this guy who's keeping a secret from you because he wants to punish you, not because he doesn't like you, not because he's forgotten about you, but because he loves you so much he's waiting for just the right time. When all of the circumstances have come together, they might be circumstances in your life that might have nothing to do with you at all. It might be somebody else. He's waiting for all of those things to come together. And then he's going to act. Let's pray.